This is the recording of week two of the TV, reality TV, marriage and reality. Song of Songs 2, 8 to 14, Colossians 3, 12 to 19. It's not a live recording. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work out on the day. So I hope you enjoy this. It goes for about 25 minutes. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, that as we open your word, that you would indeed be speaking to us, that we'll be listening, and that we'll put your words into practice. We pray that for whoever who listens to this, uh, whenever it happens, that, that that would be the case, that they would hear your word and respond in faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we started last week by making a simple comparison. What does God say about love and how is love often portrayed in the world around us? So on our TV screens, often reflecting that worldview. So today, as we talk about love and marriage, well, there's a possibility that some difficult uh, issues are raised. And can I just encourage you, no matter when you're listening to this, if you need to talk to someone about that, uh, please do that. Don't let it slide. Uh, no matter what stage you're at in life, uh, please find someone, come and talk to me uh, at Robertson Anglican here, uh, if you'd like, or a good Christian friend. Now, one of the aims of these two weeks, especially, is to demonstrate how good, realistic and practical the Bible's teaching is on love and marriage. Or well, as I said last week, Jesus is better and he's worth following. And as Christians, we need to be convinced that God's word, as we read it in our Bibles, is not only the best for us, but it's also authoritative over and against the culture of today. Now, yes, there's, a, there's going to be clashes, aren't there? It is God's word to us, and we must come to the conclusion and be convinced that his word has authority over and against the culture of our day. And if you're a follower of Jesus, yes, you need to be convinced of this, that God's word is not only authoritative, but works and is best, and it makes more sense than what we watch on TV, on Netflix, on YouTube, anywhere on the web, whatever, what we hear or read in the opinion pages in the paper, or even what our trusted friends say. So, let's have a think about marriage and reality. Now, if you're old enough, you might remember the US TV sitcom Married with Children, uh, which presented a fairly dysfunctional view of marriage and a pretty negative view of life bringing up, uh, bringing up kids. It was funny at times, though. The show used, rather ironically, the Frank Sinatra song I quoted last week in its opening credits. Love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage. You can't have one without the other. I won't sing it for you now, though. Sinatra was right. The two do go together. And it's why we're looking at these two topics in our first two weeks, love and marriage. Although after four marriages, I'm not sure old Blue Eyes has all the answers. Last week, we spent some time thinking about love and hearing what God has to say about love. We're going to keep hearing from God, for he's not only the one who invented love, he's the one who invented marriage. Now, it's worth stating the obvious as we begin. Marriage is under threat. And not just due to the definition changes in law. Uh, there are more and more de facto relationships. There are more divorces and shorter marriages. In fact, marriages have decreased, but weddings have increased. We get caught up in weddings, spend thousands, sometimes millions, throwing all our energy into the big day, but none into the marriage itself. At least in our culture, if marriage was a currency, well, you wouldn't want to invest in it. Its value is diminishing. Marriage as an institution has changed, and dramatically, in the last five to ten years. 
Weddings have increased in value, but marriage has been cheapened. Perhaps the show Married at First Sight demonstrates this show that just started last week. The show's concept is to put two strangers together to be married. Now, admittedly, it's not a legal marriage, it's just for show. Uh, these two strangers have never met. Now, at this point, I showed a clip um, from the show. It'd be fair to ask, is marriage just something we experiment with? With the attitude of, well, let's just try and give it a go and see if it works out. If it doesn't work out, we'll just find someone else. Is marriage like buying a car? Well, it's great at first, and then it starts to wear out, and so we trade the old one in to get a new one. And is marriage just about my personal quest to find love? Or is there, is there more to it? What's the secret to a good marriage anyway? Well, I'm not quite sure we'll answer all these questions today, but we'll give it a go. Although you might need to do some work for yourself, uh, work yourself over morning tea, chatting to people. Again, our aim is to compare and contrast God's view of marriage against the world's view of marriage. And of course, we will and have made generalisations and there are always going to be exceptions. Now, what if I'm not married? Should I switch off now? No, no, no. Stay with us. Marriage itself is fundamental to God's purposes and it's still, uh, it's still such an influential part of uh, the society in which we live. So listen on and don't forget... Uh, at the end of this series, we'll have a one-off on singleness. So let's open our Bibles to work out what God says about Christian marriage. I've got two lines of inquiry as we make our comparison. One is, what is marriage? And the second is, what is marriage for? Well, what is marriage? We need to go to the start of the Bible. We need to go to Genesis 1 and 2. Before we get to a definition, we need to see that marriage is not a result of the fall it's not a result of sin, and it's not a way of coping with sinfulness. Only God, through his offer of forgiveness, can do that. Christian marriage is something that is good. It's part of God's good order at creation. God, God created it and established it. It's a gift from God. It's the way God intends human life to be. This will come out more as we look at the three purposes of marriage in a few minutes' time. Marriage is not a cultural thing. Uh, weddings may be, but not marriage. In fact, what type of wedding you have church, beach, clifftop, fish shop, pub, doesn't matter. It's the marriage that matters. So what about a definition? How would you define marriage as we read it in our Bibles? Well, here's what one commentator came up with. Marriage is a lifelong union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others as taught by God in Scripture. Well, that's not a bad definition, I think. But let's see how marriage is defined in the beginning. I'm going to turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 20 to 24. It's the same passage Jesus uses in Matthew 19 when he is defining marriage. He goes right back to creation to define what marriage is. So let's read it from verse 20, Genesis 2. But for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Well, let's focus on that last verse, verse 24. I hope you've got your Bibles open in front of you. 
Can you see there are three parts to this togetherness that God provided? The context is that no suitable helper or companion was found amongst the animals for Adam. And in verse 23, it uh, tells us that Adam was very excited by what God gave him. Fair enough. Uh, first part, leave. Uh, the man with his li- wife are to leave the family they grew up with, break away from emotionally, financially, in parenting, physically. So Note too that the essential, an essential part of this good created order is that marriage as created by God is between a man and a woman. So leave is the first part of this little definition we get from chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis. The second part is cleave. Now this is the old-fashioned word. It's really cleave to. Uh, Cleave means to separate from, but cleave to, confusingly, sorry about that, means to be united to. It's an old-fashioned term. United to, to, cleave, uh, through the sexual union, a new exclusive bond is formed emotionally, spiritually, and physically. From the very beginning, sex is made for marriage. It's the best sex because of the lifelong promises a married couple make to each other. Now take some time to read Song of Songs, uh, one of our readings today. It it follows the love story of a married couple. Because of this service's uh, PG rating, we can only read a small section. It gets a little saucy at other points, but good saucy. Love and physical attraction between a married couple. It's a gift from God and so much better in the context and the promises of Christian marriage. We'll touch on it when we get to the purposes of marriage, but as much as marriage is a partnership, it's also a romance. Uh, Keep reading Song of Songs. So even though a married couple are two separate beings, uh, Genesis and other parts of the Bible teaches that sex brings them together in unity. It's a very high view of sex, unlike the view that we're fed today in society regards to sex. Now, one of John Dixon's um, uh, great books, that's for teenagers actually, really, A Sneaking Suspicion, he uses this great illustration. Uh, in a writes of the Bible's view of sex is like a Porsche. It's something of great value. You, you, you don't, don't go to lend it out to other people uh, for anyone to have a go. And there are enormous consequences if you do. But he goes on, the world's view of sex is cheap. It's like an old Datsun. Uh, well, actually, an old Datsun these days is pretty expensive and, and pretty cool, really. Uh, what about an early 1990s Falcon? I'm sorry if you own one of them. Uh, we, if you get on early 1990s model Falcon, it's, not, it's a pretty cheap car. So you, well, you can pass it around. You don't mind lending it out. This is a bit like the world's view of sex. If it gets used a bit, well, it doesn't really matter. It's not something of great value. But God says sex is something of great value. So much so that he keeps that gift for marriage. Okay, back to Genesis 2 verse 24. So we have leave, cleave to, and third part, one flesh. They are now a new unit, distinct from sep- and separate from others. It's a permanent bond. And, and now when Jesus quoted this verse in Matthew 19, he, he added, Therefore what God has joined together, let, not, uh, let man not separate. In other words, Jesus clearly taught that marriage is something of great significance and great worth. Now, before we move on to the purposes of marriage, we need to add something else into the mix when it comes to defining biblical marriage and how we understand what it is. That is, the Bible speaks of the relationship between God and his people as a marriage. Now, the Bible tells us, and history tells us, that it's, a, it's, it's an adulterous marriage. Prophet Hosea writes, in turning their backs on God, God's people have committed adultery. 
Because of, this, because of sin, we are separated from God. Yet in Jesus we can be brought back. The marriage can be reconciled, made pure as a bride perfectly presented for her husband. And that's the picture that's presented in Revelation 19 and 21. It depicts this heavenly marriage, God's people prepared by Jesus at the cross as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. What we see in Scripture is that God's gift of marriage here and now in this life is an anticipation of the greatest of all marriages, the marriage to end all marriage, and that is between God and his people forever, perfectly in heaven, where unlike our marriages in this life, there is no more hurt, pain, tears, the old order of things, sin has passed away. Marriage then is fundamental to God's purposes. We'll see that more in a minute, but in the broader scheme of things, our marriages ought to point us to the Christian, the greatest marriage, that of God and his people. You could say Christian marriage then ought to point people to the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. Does your marriage do that? Does your marriage point people to Jesus? God's marriage to his people is the pattern for our marriages today. In service, in love, in sacrifice, in trust, in responsibility, our marriages ought to point people to Jesus. Well, what's marriage for? What are the purposes of marriage? It's not a bad question to ask, is it? When I do some marriage preparation with a couple, I like to start asking, why do you want to get married? Uh, that can be taken numerous ways. Uh, but let's think about it for a few minutes, about the purposes of marriage. Now, the well-known Church of England Archbishop Thomas Cramner, uh, Cramner in 1662 presented three, a threefold purpose of marriage based on three passages of scripture. We're going to go and we're going to use that. Uh, the threefold purposes are still part of our modern Anglican marriage service today. So here's what he wrote. Here's the first purpose, uh, although these are not in particular order, and this one certainly jars against culture today. It was ordained for the procreation of children to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of his holy name, says uh, Thomas Cramner. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27. This is where Cramner got this from. Genesis 1, so verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Here we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that one of the purposes of marriage is to go and make babies, to be fruitful and increase in number a consequence of the cleaving part. For marriage, the Bible tells us, provides the context for children to grow and love God, to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Children see parental sacrifice, love, service, forgiveness, faithfulness, and so on. We should be clear here, we're not saying that a childless marriage is less of a marriage. Many couples, for one reason or another, are unable to have children. The point is that marriage is not designed or ordained for two people to selfishly enjoy one another as they increase their wealth and possessions for them to enjoy. Marriage is the right God-given context to raise children, teaching them to know and love God. What about the second purpose of marriage? Well, here's again uh, Thomas Cramner. Marriage was ordained for the re a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication or sexual immorality, that such persons as have not the gift of continency, might marry and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. Well, that's quite a mouthful. Uh, what do he have in mind here? Well, I think 1 Corinthians 7 verses 2 and 9. 
1 Corinthians 7 verse 2. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And skip down to verse 9. If they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The Bible teaches clearly that sex is for marriage. Why get married? Well, one day some couple will say to me, uh, so we can have sex. Now, it's not the only purpose of marriage, but it's an important purpose. Being married reduces the temptation to sin sexually. Now, I say reduces because clearly you can still sin sexually in marriage. The problem is that society separates sex from marriage. One author talks about the sexual chaos that results from such an attitude, the watering down of sex, the try-before-you-buy view of marriage and sex, all of which results in pain and broken lives. In Australia, a recent survey by the Australian Bureau of Statistics showed that couples that live together before marriage are between 20 and 30% more likely to split up. Third purpose of marriage. Uh, I guess we can call it companionship. It was ordained for the mutual society, help, comfort that one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. Let's think back to Genesis 2, 18 to 25. The creation story mentions a number of times how good things were. But here, in chapter 2, verse 18, for the first time, something was not good. Adam was alone. Now, Adam wasn't lonely, but he was alone. It's not that he was unhappy. He needed a teammate, a companion, a partner, so as to fill the earth and subdue it. Rule by God together. Togetherness by God. He couldn't do it on his own. Well, that's a lot for us to think about today. As we've talked, uh, or now we haven't talked much about how marriage works. We'll have to leave that for another day. However, I'm hoping you can. I'm hoping you uh, that that knowing about Christian marriage and defining Christian marriage and knowing what it is and what are its purposes, you can see a little about how Christian marriage ought to work. Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, is excellent, and so is this one, Christopher Ash, The Married for God. Uh, great books to read if you want to continue that think that thinking uh, with your spouse. But have you noticed the difference between the value of marriage and the value God puts on it and the value our culture places on marriage? Why don't I pray for us? Father, we thank you for marriage. We thank you for the gift that it is. We pray that you'd help, of us, help those of us who are married today uh, that our marriages would point to you, Lord Jesus, and point to the cross. Amen.